and Riley and Casey. I always enjoy seeing the little kids too. Last night we had our uh, Christmas caroling and we had a lot of little kids this year, which was a joy to see. I always like to see the little kids interact with, you know, we go to the nursing homes or the convalescent homes and and uh, I always think that the older uh, people that are living in these homes get a kick out of the kids as much as anything. And uh, so I was watching one of the little kids as we were going around uh, saying our Merry Christmases afterwards, and uh, one, of the, one of the little girls reached up and gave a kiss to one of the people sitting in a wheelchair. And uh, the tears start flowing right away. But it made my night because I just it uh, it it helped me to see the see the uh, value of what we're doing, and we just want to be as a church and as Christians, we want to be a light of for the season. We want to remind people of the good news that we have through Jesus, and that is what it is all about. In fact, that's what this series Christmas Unwrapped is about. We want to unwrap the meaning of Christmas. Because we want to make sure that our hearts and our minds are focused in on the right things. For a number of years, I was a camp counselor at a Christian uh, camp. And we would get a new batch of campers in every Sunday afternoon. And they'd stay till Friday afternoon. So you only have a few days to really get to know them and for them to form friendships and everything. So I always had a strategy in mind. What I would do is Sunday afternoon, I'd run them like crazy, get them really tired out because A, that made my job a lot easier on the, for the rest of the week. But then that night, when uh, they're all worn out, I would gather them when it's about bedtime and I'd say, okay guys, we're going on a hike. And, I, and they'd grab their flashlights, they were all excited, we'd march out into the middle of the woods And once we're out in the middle of the woods, I'd say, okay. And I'd open up my backpack and say, all the flashlights in here. And I'd gather up all the flashlights and I'd say, we're doing the rest of the hike in the dark. And we'd sit there for like 20 minutes. you got to realize, some of these kids have never been in the woods, let alone in the woods at like midnight. And so some of them are like freaking out. But we sit there for 20 minutes and eventually there, uh, our eyes begin to adjust to the darkness, and then we begin to walk. And uh, without me even having to say anything, pretty soon kids that didn't know each other but a few hours ago are holding each other's hands and trying to help each other around the path. And kids that I had the hardest time getting their attention to, they are hanging on every word that I say now. Watch out for the branch, watch out for the step down and all of these things. And by the, end of the, by the end of the hike, things had happened. Things that could only happen in the dark. That they had formed friendships, that they had learned uh, to listen to me as the leader. Some of those that were very, very scared at first were proud of their own bravery, that they were able to do all of these things. But I tell that story because I think there are lessons that we can learn when we are in the dark. Metaphorically speaking, when we go through those dark nights at times, there are purposes for that. We might not understand it at first. In fact, I guarantee you none of the campers knew why I was taking them on a night hike in the, 
uh, on the first night of camp at midnight, but there was a reason behind it. And God comes and meets us in the night. In fact, we're going to look at the Christmas story this morning. And the title of this message is, He Came at Night Like He Usually Does. And that is a, a spiritual principle for us. That in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of uh, the nights that we go through in our lives, Jesus meets us. That's a spiritual truth that I want to uh, drive home. We're going to look at this Christmas story, and we're going to see that there is darkness all over the place. There is political darkness for the Israelites. There is religious darkness. There is spiritual darkness for Mary and Joseph. There is uh, emotional darkness and even physical uh, darkness. And Jesus came into the darkness. He came at night like he usually does. I want us to think about this Christmas story that with our, if we read it with our eyes open, is not such a happy, pretty picture, actually. But as we relate the Christmas story to us in this light, may we recognize the darkness in our own life and draw hope that God's light would shine into it. I'm going to read, first of all, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. And then I want to read just a couple verses in John chapter 1. The first speak of the literal darkness, and the second speak of the spiritual darkness. The first uh, comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their town to register. So Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This is a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And now two verses from John chapter 1. Verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Father God, as we now open up your word, we invite you to come and to be our teacher. God, we just pray that you would come and speak to us. Help us to receive the message that you have for us today. And so, God, we just uh, proclaim our dependence upon you. 
and ask that you would come and minister to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. A few points about the Christmas story. I want to make, first of all, three points about the darkness around the Christmas story, and then I want to make four points of application. So first of all, the points around the uh, darkness in the Christmas story. The first point is this, that these were dark days for the Israelites. These were dark days for the Israelites. We see this kind of implied here in this story in in Luke 2 that we read. We see that the Israelites are under Roman occupation. Uh, When Jesus comes, the Israelites, who were God's chosen people, had been under Roman occupation since 63 B.C., when after much turmoil and civil war within Israel... The Romans invade and invaded and conquered Jerusalem. Julius, Julius Caesar and the Senate installed Herod as the king of the Jews. And the Romans allowed the Israelites to keep their homeland and to have some of their own uh, rulers to keep some of their religious and cultural traditions. But the Israelites really lacked any sort of real power. These were dark days for the Israelites who were living under the oppressive control of the Romans. Now, when the Romans called for a census to be taken, like we see here in Luke chapter 2, there are no ifs, ands, or buts. Everyone had to go on the spot to their city of origin. The young and the old, the, uh, the ill and those who are pregnant. And that's what we see happening here in this story. And I think that the Israelites had been, uh, may have been wondering, what is going on here? Not only were they under Roman occupation, but they had not heard from God for 400 years. Now, some of us who have sat through a lot of Christmas stories, we hear this all the time, that, the, that God had not spoken to his people for 400 years since the close of the Old Testament. And I want us just to think about that for a minute. What if we had not heard from God since the early 1600s? On a regular basis, I expect to hear from God in one way or another, through the reading of his word or through the preaching of his word or through just circumstances in life or with a conversation with someone? What if we had not heard from God for 400 years? Would not our thought be that either God doesn't care about us anymore or that God is distant from us or even that God is dead? And I have to imagine that for many of the Israelites, they have that perspective that they no longer matter to God. Uh, Going back in their history, they have been told over and over again, they've told the stories that they are supposed to matter to God, that they are God's chosen people, that they are special to God. Going all the way back to their forefather Abraham, in Genesis 2, uh, God says to Abraham, or in Genesis 12 too, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I guarantee you in Luke chapter 2, they don't feel blessed. 
They have all of these restrictions being placed on on them, and they are under Roman occupation and Roman oppression. Again, to Abraham, God says in Genesis 17, The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give you as uh, as an everlasting possession and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. That, that is a strange verse to those who live in a land that is technically no longer theirs. Who live in an area where God has promised to be their God, but He has not spoken to them for four centuries. And when Israel is born... Many, or, and when Jesus is born, many in Israel had given up on God. They had thought that he had forgot about them or he had left them. And then the angel appears to the shepherds at night. As we read here in Luke chapter uh, 2, verse 9, he appears to them and he proclaims this good news. And what's their, re- what's their reaction? They're overjoyed, right? No, it says that they are terrified. This is not good news to them at first. They, they seem that this is a scary thing. They have lost all contact with the Lord. These are dark days for Israel. And what does it say? The, Lord's, uh, the angel says, Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you. You know who needs a Savior? Those who are in trouble. And they recognize that they are in darkness and that they are in trouble and that they are in need of saving. These are dark days for the Israelites. These are dark days for Mary and Joseph. Whenever Chelsea and I... uh, uh, Now, this is not a regular conversation, so don't be asking Chelsea these these questions right now. But we've talked about if two's enough or if number three is on the way. And uh, Chelsea always reminds me, she says, I have had rough pregnancies. And so, FYI, number three is not on the way. Uh, But uh, to say the least, this was a rough pregnancy for Mary. When she is nine months pregnant, because we know it happens right when she gets to Bethlehem. She is far along when the census is issued. And it says that immediately they have to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Look at verse uh, 4 again. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now I want to show you a map here and tell me what is wrong with this map. At the top of the map is Nazareth. At the bottom of the map is Bethlehem. And what does the text say? The text says that they went up, right? Shouldn't it say they went down? That's how we usually read a map. The reason it says that they went up is because they went up in elevation. That the elevation was, uh, they had to travel through all of these mountains on their way to Bethlehem. Bethlehem Nazareth to Bethlehem is 80 miles. If you were to walk out of the doors of the church this morning uh, and walk 80 miles in an uphill elevation, you would get to Big Bear Lake. We are exactly 80 miles from Big Bear Lake. I did a a search on the 
uh, Google Maps, okay? It is 80 miles. Can you imagine? Let's, let's, um, let's use our imaginations. Imagine you are pregnant or you are married to someone who is pregnant. And I can envision going to Chelsea. This is the Sunday before she is going to be born. Right after church, we walk out the doors and say, we are going to walk to Big Bear Lake. You know what kind of reaction I would get? You are out of your mind. If I'm... Now, I say walk. Women that are nine months pregnant do not walk. They waddle, right? We are going to waddle to Big Bear Lake. And this is where Mary and Joseph are at. I do not think that they feel blessed in this moment. Uh, it, the, Mary has earlier said, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. She had that song in her heart the night she found out that she had conceived by the Holy Spirit. I have to believe a different song would be in her heart as she makes her way to Bethlehem. My soul is ticked off with God, for he has not been mindful of the pregnant state of his servant. From now on, all generations will think that my future husband is crazy. That's the type of song that was going through her heart. These are dark days for Mary and Joseph. Now, if you were in good health, you could travel, make that 80-mile 80, 80 travel in probably about three or four days. Most scholars that I read anticipate that it was probably a five- to eight-day journey. These were hard things. This was, this was the physical state they were in. And when they do arrive to Bethlehem, every hotel has a no-vacancy sign in the window. And so she has her baby born in among all of these, all this livestock. And it says a manger. We get these idealized pictures of a manger with this um, wooden crate with this nice hay. Firstborn uh, mothers realize that there are, first time uh, mothers are especially mindful of germs. This was a cattle trough. This was a feeding trough for dirty animals. This was not an ideal situation. I can imagine these are dark days. And that's just the physical. Can you imagine the spiritual state that they are in? Sure, Mary. You've conceived by the Holy Spirit? Yeah, right. That's a new one I've never heard before. That sounds very reasonable. And Joseph was embarrassed at first to the point where he was going to Get rid of the whole situation. The Bible talks about it as a divorce. They're engaged, but the engagement is such a strong commitment that 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 is the word that's used. They are going to get divorced. And you can imagine the dirty looks they get, how they may have been ostracized by society and even by their families. These are dark days for Mary and Joseph. And then one more observation I'd like to make about the Christmas story. And that is, when God finally did show up, He seemed to disappear. He seemed to immediately disappear again. The angel comes and appears to Mary and Joseph right when they uh, realize that, uh, 
right when, when he announces to them that Mary is expecting. And they do not hear from him again until the shepherds come and announce that they have heard from the Lord. And these time lapses are very difficult in dark days. Maybe you have been through dark days. Maybe you are even going through a dark night right now. And you wonder, when is God going to show up? And as soon as he shows up, maybe it feels like he disappears again right away. Abraham heard that he was going to conceive. We read that story that uh, his wife was going to conceive and they were going to have a child from whose line was going to be the people of Israel. And he did not uh, have the child. He and Sarah, <coughs> excuse me, did not have the child until he, they, were old, they were old people. Israel had not heard from God for 400 years. Mary and Joseph, as we have said, have not heard from God for nine months. Wise men come and they uh, uh, tell about, uh, they show up to uh, bring gifts, but do you know what? That is probably not for another two or three years. And then it is 30 years until Jesus starts his earthly ministry. He, and then he dies on the cross, rises from the dead, and ascends into heaven saying he'll be back soon. That's been almost 2,000 years ago. God has these time lapses, and they are difficult. When we are going through the dark night, it is a hard thing. But God's timing is always different than our timing. As Second Peter says, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years. We put up our Christmas tree this past week. And uh, we put some gifts under it. We have a little girl at home named Kinsey who is four years old. Every day, Kinsey asks, is today Christmas? Can we open the presents today? Kinsey has no concept of time. What a day means, that, that means nothing in her little world. No, Kinsey, we got several more weeks to go the next day. Can we open the presents today? No, Kinsey, today's not the day. And that's the conversation that happens around all kinds of subjects. She has no idea of time. And I wonder if God looks upon us and we are begging him to act immediately. Is today the day that I'll be brought out of the dark night? Is today the day that we will finally have God's light and everything will be Okay, and yet God's timing is different than our timing. But it doesn't mean that he's not with us or that he has left us alone. In fact, I'd like to make four points of application to remember during the dark nights. Number one is that we don't have to understand, but we do have to trust God. You see, I look at Mary in this story. She does not have understanding in what is going on. She's been told that she's going to have the Savior, but uh, she does not have all of the big picture. She doesn't have all of the light. In fact, even in this passage, it says that Mary and Joseph marvel at everything that is taking place. In other words, they don't know every step along the way, and neither do we. And the good thing is we actually don't need to. We don't have to have the big picture. We don't need to know. In fact, if we had the big picture, I don't know if it would really make a difference. Do you think that if Mary knew that one day her son would die on the cross, that it would bring her a tremendous amount of comfort and relief? 
Sometimes we go through these dark nights and we don't need the uh, big picture, but we do need to trust God one step at a time. Psalm 19.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You see, God doesn't promise us the road map, but he gives us a lamp for our feet, a light for our path, so we can take one step at a time. There are many times in my own life where I have been left wondering and pondering, what is the Lord uh, doing here? I just think about even just something that all of you are very aware of. When we went into the season after pa- Pastor Rick's retirement, I was very confident that the Lord was calling us to go into a certain model of ministry with uh, a co-pastorate. And then all of that didn't work out, and I'm left wondering, Lord, what's going on? Have I not heard you right? Have I not uh, followed your leading right? And I've come to the conclusion that, that is not, those are not actually the, the answers to those questions are not necessarily yes. That maybe we were exactly following the Lord's will, but we don't always have the big plan before us. Isaiah 55 says, and this is the Lord speaking, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. God's thoughts and God's ways we sometimes cannot understand, and that's okay. We don't need to understand them all, but to trust Him. I was talking to one of our church members this week who has a niece who's been diagnosed with cancer. A parent who's been laid off right before Christmas. A man who needs surgery and can't get the doctor to operate. A wife who has lost her husband far too early. These are all stories from our church family. And it's hard to understand And we look around and we think, God, what are you up to? And all we can say is God's thoughts must be higher than our thoughts. And God's ways must be greater than our ways. I walked into a hospital room and the woman that I had come to see was laying on the hospital bed unconscious. And so I went and I said a prayer for her and then I made my way around the room and All the family members are there, and I ask each one, almost out of politeness, because several of the family members I don't know, uh, just to let you know, if there's anything I can do, let me know. And to my surprise, one of the the daughter of this woman who I'd come to visit says, "Yes, there is something you can do. You can answer me a question: Why is God such an a-hole?" And she didn't use an abbreviation. And you're taken back by that kind of uh, question, but the feelings are legit. The feelings come from a place of real darkness. God, how can you do this? And I don't know the answer. All I can do is empathize, and I can say, I don't know. But the thing is, even in the midst of the dark night, may we trust God. You see, the second point of application is God shows up in the crisis. In the crisis. 
God does not always do exactly like we would like him to do. I am sure Mary and Joseph would have rather been in the penthouse suite of one of these hotels with nice sterile sheets and a comfortable bed, but they're given a barn and a feeding trough. But the good news is God provides that. And the good news is that he provides the encouragement of the shepherds coming with their story of how the angels uh, have, what the angels have said to them. And I think that that actually is the biggest place where we see God in this story. You see, how God oftentimes shows up in the crisis is not by taking away all of our problems, but actually meeting us with his presence in the midst of all of that. Jesus said before he ascended into heaven, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. As we talked about uh, this idea of the dark night, it, it, it quickly brings to a verse to mind that most of us will probably be familiar with. Psalm 23. What does that say? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. You see, we can go through the darkest times of life if we have the promise that God is with us. A.W. Tozer says the presence of God is the central fact of Christianity. At the heart of the Christian message is God himself waiting for his redeemed children to push into conscious awareness of his presence. I heard a sermon on Psalm 23 and the the uh, pastor was talking about why is it that the shepherd is even leading his sheep through valleys? Sheep are not natural people to be able, not natural animals to be able to climb elevation. What is he even doing going through areas of where it's up and down, valleys and mountains? And he points out that in the ancient world, the shepherds would lead their sheep up the mountain because in the hot months of summer, sometimes all the lower vegetation would die off in the midst of the heat. And the, the Lord was leading them up so that they could find lush grass to eat. And that is true for us as well. God takes us through the valleys of the, uh, of the shadow of death. Sometimes the main purpose of that is to learn to look for his presence. To learn to trust in him. Satan has two main attacks in this world. One, to turn us away from the presence of God. And two, to cause us to doubt God's goodness. I become convinced of this. These are the main two attacks of Satan. He wants us to turn us away from the presence of God and to cause us to doubt God's goodness. This is what we see Satan doing even all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The serpent comes and, uh, and he says to Eve, did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? And Eve says, no, God didn't say that, but he did say that we are not to eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, which was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You will not surely die, says the serpent, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is Satan doing there? He's causing Adam and Eve to question the goodness of God. 
Maybe God is withholding some good from you. If you just eat it, then you'll have something that he doesn't want you to have. He'll have knowledge of good and evil. And all of a sudden, that, temp- that fruit looks so good. And we go through the dark night, and that is this temptation that Satan brings to us. Maybe God is not really as good as he says he is. Maybe he's withholding something. Surely this would be better than this. And in our own finite uh, understanding, we look at all of that and we say, yeah, maybe God isn't so good. And Satan tries to take us away from the presence of God and he, causes, and he tries to cause us to doubt the goodness of God. You see, we don't have to have all of the understanding of what is going on, but we have to trust God. And then the third thing I want to point out is that God is good to us in, our, uh, in all his ways to us. God is good in all his ways to us. I am sure that there was a temptation to Mary and Joseph to say, is this really good? Is God really seeking for uh, the best for us? And the angels have proclaimed to the shepherds, and I'll read it in the old King James because it uses the word good here, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. You see, God's, uh, God's plan for us really is for our good. A verse we like to quote in the dark night is Romans eight twenty eight. For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. And that can be kind of a verse we use to gloss over a lot of things. But there is truth there. That actually in all of these things, God is working for our good. And we might not always see it. But that leads us to the last uh, point, And that is, if we bail out, we'll miss out. If we bail out, we'll miss out. If we give up when all seems dark, we'll miss out on God's blessing. I think back to those night hikes I used to take the campers on. And the kids that were the most scared were the ones that seemed to get the most out of it. I heard every excuse in the world. We can't do this. What if we get attacked by a bear? There's no bears that live out in these woods. What if I step on a rattlesnake? It'll rattle before you step on it. Don't worry. What if I fall off the edge of a cliff? I've only had six people walk off a cliff all summer, and most of them lived. Okay, so we hear all of these excuses. But the reality is, the kids that were the most scared were the ones that had the best time afterwards. If we bail out, we will miss out. And I just want to encourage us This morning, if you feel like you are in the midst of that dark night, if you're going through the hardest of of times, don't give up faith. God may be trying to work a blessing in your life that you will miss out completely if you throw in the towel now. Can you imagine if Mary and Joseph would have thrown in the towel? All of the blessings that they, had, they would later experience would have been gone. All of the blessings that we experience now because of their faithfulness would have been missed. Mary proclaims when she first finds out that uh, she is pregnant 
that all generations after her would call her blessed. And that is exactly what we are doing this morning. We are calling her blessed. Why? Because she didn't bail out. Faith is not a conqueror who has all confidence, but a survivor who keeps going. Faith is not a conqueror who has all the confidence to say, yeah, I've got it all together, we're going to keep on going. Faith is oftentimes a survivor who just keeps going. And this morning, you may be running this morning, but you also may be walking, you may even be crawling. But the victor crosses the finish line. So that's my encouragement to you this morning. Keep going. Keep going. Don't lose heart. A person of faith will not give up in the hardest times, but will keep going. He he or she won't bail out, won't give up, won't turn back, but will cross the finish line. So where are you this morning? Is today, are you in the pitch black of night? Are you going through this difficult season? Keep going. Don't give up. It's worth it. God is good and his blessings for you are good. So that is my encouragement for us this morning. Don't bail out. If you bail out, you'll miss out. This Christmas story reminds us that the life of faith is not going to be easy. Nowhere in this Christmas story. We like to make it real rosy and have it uh, be real fun when little kids put on musicals. And that's good and wonderful, but the reality is if we take off our rose-colored glasses, this Christmas story reminds us that the life of faith is not actually going to be easy. We are going to have dark nights. However, the life of faith is to keep going, to waddle along, to crawl along, to just keep going and don't bail out or you'll miss out on all the blessings. And so maybe you're in the pitch black dark of night right now. The good news is that Jesus came at night, both literally and metaphorically. He came at night to be your Savior, and he'll meet you in the dark again.